0: Good morning. It's awesome to be with you here down south. The beautiful trip from Meltbus this morning.
1: It's a bit wet and uh, whatever, but Cape Town's always beautiful. And uh, you guys are even more beautiful. And it's a real privilege to, to be with you, to be able to share. And uh, the word I've got this morning, I feel, is a really key word for, for, for us. And for you as a congregation, as God is just desiring, I think, to shake things up a
0: little bit, take us into new things. But who is this God that we serve? What is he like? If I was to ask you to describe God
1: in one word, throw out some words for me and see if anybody here gets the word
0: that I'm going to preach on this morning. Love. Sovereign, holy, those are all great words. Somebody got close because
1: all those things are true and he's a many-faceted God. I think that's why we have eternity with him because it'll take us eternity to discover all of his attributes and all of his facets.
0: But what I want to talk about this morning is a dangerous God. Dangerous God Dangerous
1: people. That's the title of my preach this morning. And if you were to be an alien, some extraterrestrial who just somehow appeared on earth, and you kind of looked at the media and watched TV to discover what Christians are like and what God is
0: like, what impression do you think you'd get? The weak, insipid, just irrelevant. In
1: fact, if you look at the movies, I've discovered two things. If if there's a priest or a a strong Christian in a movie, there'll be one of two things. They'll either be really evil and be a hypocrite, or they'll be really insipid and weak and irrelevant. Yeah? Because that's how the world wants to view Christians, and it's how the world wants to wants to view God. It's how, how the world wants to view Christ. Those, those people in the world who do want to acknowledge that Jesus lived, want, you know, either want to uh, portray him as an evil bigot or some hippie guy who just let, you know, hey, bro, whatever.
0: Just whatever is your vibe, man, that's fine.
1: But the real Jesus, the real
0: God we serve, is dangerous. One of my favorite book series is The Chronicles of Narnia. Who's a fan of The Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah! The rest of you repent, get the book. And in The Lion, the Witch, and
1: the Wardrobe, I, I, I want to read you a little extract. It's a very well-known extract. But it kind of illustrates my point. And in this, you've got four young people. If, you've, if you don't know the story, don't, ex, don't expect this to make sense. But they go and hide in a wardrobe and end up in another country full of talking animals and stuff. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, um, but in this land, it, it, it's, it's always, they say it's always winter and never Christmas. Because it's under a curse. And this witch has, has put the land over, under a curse. But spring is beginning, the signs of spring are beginning to happen. Because the king is coming back. The king is returning. And these these four kids are learning that the king is returning. And he's returning. And they're a part of his plan. And part of his plan is that when he returns and defeats this witch who's put the world under a curse, they're going to rule with him. But they haven't met him yet. And there's just this rumor that he's coming back. He's on his way back. And as they're on their journey, they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Um, who are who are followers of Aslan,
0: and they said that they're going to meet Aslan. And this is this is the conversation. Is is he a
1: man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? Said Mister Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the King of the Wood, the son of the Great Emperor beyond the Sea. Don't you know who is the King of Beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells
0: you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our God isn't safe, but he is good. He's all powerful. And we have to hold this thing in tension of of a love of God an
1: intimacy with God and a fear of God. And some people have struggled with that. I remember years ago talking to Mervis, and Mervis was wrestling with this a little bit because we know Mervis, right? If you say, what, what attributes of God does Mervis convey?
0: <laughs> oh, the love, the Father, just, oh. And he was wrestling, and lots of people do, I think, but doesn't perfect love cast out all fear and all?
1: Yeah, I don't fear being rejected by God because of his love. And as I was trying to wrestle how with these things, there was, there was two things in Scripture that came to me. One is in the book of Esther. You remember in the book of Esther, the king has been conned basically into signing a decree that all the Jews can be murdered. And Mordecai comes to Esther, who's married the king, and says, you're a Jew, You've got to, you've got to speak on behalf of your people and rescue your people. You've got to go to the king. And she says, no, the law is if I go to the king in his throne room, I will instantly be put to death unless he holds out his his staff. And so it was a terrifying thing to walk into the throne room uninvited. She had a fear of the king because she knew his power and his position. And yet this was the king she was married to. She had been intimate with the king. She knew what it was to be intimate, but she had an understanding of who she was intimate with. And if we don't understand the position and the power of God, then we can't truly appreciate his kindness and his intimacy. Paul writes that in Romans, consider then the sternness and the kindness of God.
0: You can't know how kind he's been unless you know how stern he can be. We don't appreciate
1: our salvation until we understand what we deserve and the holiness and the power of God. And God isn't safe, but he is good. So we can be secure in our relationship,
0: but he's certainly not safe. And when he comes into our lives, it's not safe. You know, many
1: churches build on a model. They call it being seeker-sensitive. And the idea is that we, we gear the services. We don't do this. They, the churches that build like this, gear the services so that if a visitor comes in, an unbeliever, they don't call them an unbeliever because an unbeliever sounds a little judgmental. So they call them a seeker.
0: If a, if a seeker walks in, they won't be uncomfortable in the meeting. And so let's not
1: be too in your face. Let's not say anything too offensive. It's like, wait a minute.
0: Then how are they going to meet this king? How are they going to meet him? And here's the deal. You shouldn't feel comfortable in church. <laughs> Nobody
1: should be, like, we can feel at home, we can feel loved, we can feel accepted. But if, if every Sunday you feel comfortable, I think there's something wrong. Because when God comes, he disturbs the status quo. When God comes, he convicts us of sin. When God comes, he challenges us and he, he calls us to more. If your relationship with God is just comfortable, maybe you've lost sight of how dangerous he is. And the reason we need to understand that God is dangerous isn't to inhibit our relationship with him, but to understand that in our relationship, we become like our father.
0: And so we serve a dangerous God in order that we can be dangerous people. And we need to be dangerous. We need to be a people that are considered Amazing or hateful, but certainly never irrelevant. And Jesus
1: promised that. He said, many will hate you on account of me. Many will hate us on account of the message that we bring. Much of the world will consider us hateful bigots and say we're dangerous because we're putting people's lives in danger. But the spirit of this age knows we're dangerous because we're going against the lies that Satan is telling people. And many people are asleep, spiritually asleep, and asleep walking the way into hell. And it's our job to wake people up. And it's our job to be dangerous. And it's our job, as we read in Acts 17, when the
0: apostles were arrested, and the accusation is, they've turned our whole city upside down. And in the culture wars that we're in and, and everything that we're bombarded with, it's so easy, I
1: think, for us to become backfooted and defensive. Because we don't want to get into trouble. We don't want to lose our jobs. We don't want to lose our friends. We don't want to lose our reputations. We don't want to. All of these things. And in, in doing it, let's be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But our job isn't to be backfooted and somehow just kind of survive until the day Jesus comes back. Our job is to bring revival to the world. Our job is to go out, we're in a fight, we're in a battle, we're in an army, and I don't want an army of ineffectual people. I wanna be alongside dangerous people. There are many stories of the founding of the SAS. Um, There's even a TV series, I'm I'm not watching it, the language is, is a little dodgy, but I've done a lot of reading. And one of, the, one of the founders of the SAS, one of the first guys in the SAS, if it wasn't for the SAS, he probably would have ended up in prison because he was just a violent man. He, when he wasn't at war, he would be fighting people. When, when he wasn't off somewhere, he'd be fighting officers. He got promoted and demoted so many times because he'd get promoted and then he'd punch an officer and get demoted again. But when they let him loose... Behind enemy lines, his feats were legendary. He wasn't tame, he wasn't weak, he wasn't ineffectual. He was a dangerous, dangerous man. And I want to read to to you something that Jordan Peterson said. And I know lots of you have read Jordan Peterson. And I'm not saying everything he says is amazing. But a lot of what he says is amazing.
0: And he said this. A harmless man is not a good man. A good
1: man is a very, very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control.
0: Can I say that again? A harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very, very dangerous
1: man who has that under voluntary control. How do I protect the weak and the helpless if I'm not dangerous? If I'm weak, how do I protect others? And I, he's, he's unsaved at the moment. He's on his way. I think he's close. But I, 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 I want to just amend his words a little bit. A good man is a very, very dangerous man who has that under voluntary control of the Spirit of God. That's even better. Yes, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But to be honest, I'm a handful. I struggle to control myself. You know, I've been accused of wanting to control other people. You know, you're an elder. All you want to do is control people. I said, I don't want to control anybody else. Just controlling myself is a full-time job. And I can't do it alone. But by the Spirit of God, I can come under his control. And then a dangerous man becomes a good man. He goes on to say this. If you think tough men are dangerous, wait until you see what weak men are capable of. God hasn't called us to be weak men and women. He's called us to be strong, carriers of his spirit. That same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost, that same Holy Spirit that
0: imbues us with power from on high. The Holy Spirit is dangerous. And if we want more of him, we have to come to him,
1: and we have to come by him. And I want to read you a second section from the Chronicles of Narnia. This isn't from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is from a subsequent book, I think, The Silver Chair. And in this, the first book has ended, and and then uh, a few years later, some other children end up... um,
0: in the land. And a young girl called Jill ends up on her own through her own stupidity.
1: And she's on her own and she's been wandering around and she finds herself dying of thirst. And she finds a stream. She thinks, oh, I'll take a drink. But as she's on her way towards the stream, she sees a lion. And it's, the passage says this. Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved even if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this
0: only by a look and a very low growl. Anybody been growled at by the Lord? I have. The delicious
1: rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. I don't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. I don't know about you, but for me, that verse is incredibly profound. And it often describes my experience often of when the Lord appears. And I realize how thirsty I am for more of the Spirit.
0: And yet, I have to come past Him. And sometimes there's a price to
1: pay. And some of the theologians go, what do you mean Jesus paid the price? And he did pay the price, and we come to him by grace. But the way to receive grace is to empty ourselves so that we can be filled with him. And so often because of our fear of, uh, of, of various things, a fear of being changed, a fear of being challenged, a fear of what he might expect us to do,
0: Some of us, we try and find refreshment in other streams, and there is not other stream. As a congregation, you've been talking about this, drinking from the stream. Lying this side of the stream is Jesus. It's God, our dangerous God who
1: makes no promises to us because he owes us no promises. And he is not safe, but he is good. Is this making sense to you? And when we understand that, we can represent him well because we become dangerous.
0: We're not safe, but we should be good. Because he wants to transform us. And he wants to transform us from a rabble he wants to
1: transform us from being weak and ineffectual and, and disqualified, and he wants to transform us into a mighty army. In the Old Testament, we see this in, in the book of Samuel with David, and David is a picture of Jesus. He's a type of Jesus. He's, 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 he was a real guy who really lived real events, but also God used that to teach us a lesson about the nature of Jesus. And we read While he was still in the desert, while he was still being persecuted, while he was still being attacked, people came to him. Men came to him. And you think, what kind of men did he attract? And in 1 Samuel 22, it says this, David departed and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, so his family came. And then it says, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt... And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. So who did he, who did he get? The indebted, the distressed, the disgruntled, the down-and-outs, the rejects. They became a mighty army. They became mighty men who did incredible things. They became dangerous people under the leadership of David. I think that's a beautiful picture that outside of Christ, when we come to Christ, no matter how amazing we think we are, when we encounter him and he shows us how we really are, we realize we are actually a mess.
0: We are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know why?
1: Because those who recognize they're spiritually bankrupt can receive salvation. You can't receive salvation if you don't know you're spiritually bankrupt because you can't, you won't come and ask for mercy.
0: There's one condition for receiving the mercy of God, and that condition is asking for it.
1: And when we understand that he takes us, and this, this powerful king says, I'm going to take you, but I'm going to place you into my army, and I'm going to make you a dangerous people. And then we look what happened to some of these men under David's leadership, in, uh, in 2 Samuel 23, it talks about some of the mighty men.
0: And this isn't just for the men, by the way. I'm using men. Mighty men and warrior women. But one of my concerns as I look around the church, not just as I look around the church, around the world, Is that it's become more and more feminine because people aren't reaching out to men and saying, Jesus is
1: the ideal man. People are going, Christianity isn't very manly.
0: I can't, I can't think of anything more manly. The church isn't for weak men. Somebody once said to me when I was younger at school, I was always getting mocked for
1: being a Christian And somebody said, you know, your Christianity is just a
0: crutch that you lean on because you're weak. I said, you're right. What's your crutch? Your crutch is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. At least my crutch I know I can rely on. And yes, I come to him weak. But as I come to him weak, he makes me strong. I dare you to be man enough to follow Jesus. Have I read you that poem when I became a Christian? I want to read it to you then. One of my favorite poems by a guy called Adrian Plass. And it's speaking of this. for those who think that uh, Christianity is for wimps. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in.
1: Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. I think, amen, amen, I think, I think, I say, amen. I'm not completely sure. Can you just run through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yes, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. You still want to follow me? I said amen a bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit, a bit, I say amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You said I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made my mind up and I say amen a bit. Well, I sat back and thought a while, then tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? I said amen tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You say that I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yes, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity.
0: It's not mine, okay? God bless me. The cost is you, not half of you but every single
1: bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, amen, I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord, I said, I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then and think about my son and tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those who no one wants to know? Are you man enough to say the things that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end, the moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Are you man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown Man enough to live the world and turn it upside down. Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. And I said, "Oh Lord, I'm frightened." But I also said, "Amen, amen, 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 amen." I said, "Oh Lord, I'm frightened." But I also said, "Amen." I think Christianity's for wimps? You think it's safe? You think it's easy? You think it's the easy way out?
0: Ask yourself, are you man enough? Are you woman enough? Are you brave enough? And I'm not a brave person.
1: I'm a raving coward at heart. (laughs) I really would prefer to end up dying
0: in my bed. But my response, when I encounter this great and glorious king,
1: when I encounter this courageous man called Jesus, this rebel You know, some people like to say, you know, Jesus only taught what he taught because he was was captured by the culture in which he lived, and he was just trying to be culturally relevant. So he didn't preach about certain things because he was a victim of his culture. If he was a victim of his culture, they wouldn't have nailed him to a cross. They nailed him to a cross precisely because he was preaching things that they hated. Saul
0: had his head chopped off for the same reason. You think Paul was just scared of offending the culture of his day? Saul who says I was stoned, shipwrecked, flogged,
1: beaten, imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And I counted all joy.
0: That's a man's man for me. That's a dangerous man. Who knows that he serves a dangerous God.
1: And David's mighty men, we read about in Samuel. And it's crazy. Just these are, these are his mighty men. These aren't the leaders. These are under David. And some of them
0: do things, exploits, even greater than David. So you've got the one guy. I'm not going to say his name because I can't pronounce it. In verse 8 of 2 Samuel 23, he gets his spear out and he kills 800 guys in one go. John Wick's a wimp. This guy's the real deal. I don't watch John Wick. Another guy, a Bunch of Philistines gather and trample his lentil field. So he kills a bunch of Philistines for trampling his lentils. That's what I call dangerous. One day David's at the laying siege to Bethlehem, where David had grown up. And he said, oh,
1: I'd love a cup of water from that spring just to remind me of my childhood days. And three of these guys take
0: the swords out and go and slaughter a bunch of the enemy just to bring back a cup of water. That's dangerous. Benaiah. It says,
1: this is one of the most random things in the whole Bible. He's famous for, he went down and struck struck down a lion in a pit on the day when snow had fallen. He's famous for having killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And I'm thinking, what are you doing outside on a snowy day? And the lion's in a pit. It's not bothering anybody. It's like he goes out for a walk. It's freezing cold, you know, but I'm a man. Cold doesn't bother me. And he didn't have his Cape Union mark puffer jacket, you know, and his Ugg boots. And he sees this lion in a pit. Oh, wouldn't it be fun to go fun and wrestle a lion? This is a
0: dangerous guy. He wrestles lions for fun. And and then he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man.
1: (laughs) I I don't know why that's important, but apparently good looking
0: Egyptian. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. So he decided to go at him with a stick. Who does he think he is? Good looking Egyptian with a spear. Goes at him with a stick, takes his spear off him and kills him with his own spear. That's a dangerous guy. We're told in Daniel, those who know their God will do great exploits. If you don't mind me paraphrasing a little bit. Those who know their dangerous God will be dangerous. And we don't use spears and swords. Scripture
1: says, our fight is not against flesh and blood. And the weapons of our warfare is not, are not carnal. They're not swords and spears, but the weapons of our war,
0: warfare is the word of God. Righteousness. Are you relevant where you are? Are you a voice? Do people even know you're saved? And if they do, do they
1: know what that means? Uh, We were having a conversation when I I just walked in here, and and I was asked, why don't we do a video series on what Christianity is for unsaved people? Because people have no idea what Christianity is anymore. That's true, right? Because this concept of Christianity has been betrayed. Do people know what Christianity
0: is who know you? Do we embody the nature of the God that we serve? And this is a
1: scary message because if I say you've got to go out there and be more dangerous, you go, how can I do that? It's too
0: scary. We do it by the power of the Spirit, but we need to drink from the river. Is this okay? Is this making sense? And I don't care if you're eight or you're 80. You know, we all have an excuse for why we can't step out. I'm too young, I'm too sick, I'm too busy, I'm too poor, I'm too ungifted, I'm too old, I'm too... time to dump the excuses. In the parable of the talents, the one who gets the, the one talent. When he's giving his ex-
1: excuse, he says, I know that you're a strict master and that you punish those who are, uh, so, so I was just too scared to do anything, so I hid my talent. And we kind of read that and think, Shem, the, the guy did only have one talent after all. Well, not a big deal. What's the big deal over one talent? You know, one talent, depending on how you, how you, how you do the calculation, was worth about 20 years wages for the average person. so even one talent is a significant thing it's a
0: significant amount it's a people I'm just a one talent person well a one talent person 20 years wages
1: It's amazing what God can do with a one talent person if you decide to be dangerous and then the principle of scripture is if you're faithful with the little he'll give you more are you willing to be dangerous? Are you willing to take risks? We talk about faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we need to be a people of faith. But we need to have a dangerous
0: faith. And I was chatting to some potential lead elders yesterday. I said, how dangerous is your faith? Or how safe have you let it become?
1: So imagine Ross has got, some serious disease, and he comes to the elders for prayer, which the Bible says, Come to the elders, let them pray for you. And so I've got just enough faith that I'll pray for him. But then I'm going to start hedging it because I don't want to be too dangerous in my faith, and I start hedging it. Lord, if it's your will, and maybe, and just bless him and, you know, just comfort him and, and, and maybe heal him as well if the rest
0: is, you know, not too. <laughs> yeah, I remember once. Um, the elders were asked to go and
1: pray for somebody who had scarlet fever. And I arrived at his house and, uh, and he said, no, no, don't come in. I know your wife's pregnant. So don't come in in case you get scarlet fever. I'm like, yeah, there's wisdom in that. But the irony just hit me full in the face. I'm there to pray for him for healing. And he says, don't come in in case you get sick. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not preaching a hy- hypergodly. But sometimes we have to step out and be dangerous. So what about when we throw out the net? When we when we 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 throw out uh, we, we give an invitation to respond to the gospel. And we, and we often this is what this is the norm these days. Everybody close your eyes. Nobody look around. Let's make it as safe as possible. And I understand why people do that. And I'm not saying it's wrong. That can be a, a wonderful way of just making it easier for people to respond. But I wonder, are you doing it to make it easier for people to respond? or Are you you doing it so that you don't have to make as big a risk? I remember being in a meeting once and a guy said, if you've never met Jesus and you want to get saved, come to the front and nobody came to the front. Then he said, "Um, if you have been saved, but you're backslidden, come to the front and still nobody responded. He said, If you're saved and not backslidden, but you want more of Jesus, come to the front. By the time his message is finished, he was like, if you're not raising the dead and driving out demons and healing the sick on a daily basis, come to the front. Because he was afraid of looking bad if nobody responded. We need to have a dangerous faith that if I look terrible because I've tried something and I failed, who cares? I want to ask the people, not the elders. Would you rather have elders who never make a mistake? Are they easy to follow, they're elders who never made a mistake? Or would you rather follow elders who make mistakes and own up to them? and Say, hey, we tried. Because we want to go beyond our own ability. We want to take risks. We want to be, be dangerous. Community leaders, deacons, elders.
0: Be dangerous, take risks, be outrageous. You have dangerous faith. The Lord convicted me at the elders camp.
1: I'll share this because I think this is one as well for us as a congregation.
0: He so said, Mike, you don't love people dangerously. And it kind of showed me this picture of my life. And when I was 11 years old, I got a scholarship to a private
1: school. I went to this private school and I arrived and I knew nobody. Most of them had come from this fancy prep school. I came from this working class school. Nobody had ever got into this private school before I got a full scholarship. And I lived on the wrong end of town. My dad was, work- we were working class. They were all middle class. So they had toys and things that I could never dream of. I had a working class accent, they didn't. I was a Christian, they weren't. I was the only boy in my year who professed to be a Christian.
0: And so, my whole school life, from 11 to 17, I didn't have a single friend at school. School was horrendous. Every day was a trial. And um, uh, most days I was mocked to some
1: degree. I got in so many fights because the one thing that wasn't Christ-like in me was if somebody, if somebody touched me, I would make sure they wouldn't bully me again because I was too much
0: effort. I <laughs> got in so many fights. But I had no friends. And so I developed a coping mechanism. My coping me- mechanism was I don't need friends.
1: I'm okay on my own. And today I often say, you know, I have a tendency to be introverted. And the truth is, I don't know if I was born introverted or if I developed my introversion as a coping mechanism. And even if I was born introverted, I didn't work against it. I worked towards it.
0: And so I developed things in myself for survival. And I tried to hate people. I tried to. I used to love the, who, who knows Simon and Garfunkel?
1: One of my favorite Simon and Garfunkel songs. I am a rock. I am an island. A rock feels, feels no pain and an island never cries. You know, he says, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. Yeah? It's laughing and it's, lo- but it's laughter and it's loving, I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. And that's how I tried to be. But I knew Jesus. And it's impossible to hate people if you love Jesus. And so, reluctantly, I loved people. But I would often say, I love you, but only because I'm commanded to, not because I want to. And God continued to do it. And I left school uh, you know, in church and church and being part of Josh Jenna. I understood I've got to love people. And as an elder, I have to love people. And I learned to love people. And I, and I tried to break that, that, myself out of that thing in my my reluctance to be isolated. You know, my first reaction at the beginning of COVID when they announced lockdowns I was like, yes! <laughs> I don't know if anybody can, <laughs> can identify with that. But i tried to work against that because I know that isn't the nature of Christ. And here's the deal. Loving people is inherently dangerous. Because if you love people, they're going to hurt you. They're going to reject you. As the poem said, can you stand it at the end? The moment
0: of betrayal by the kisses of a friend. And the Lord said, Mike, you love people, but not dangerously. You've loved people safely. And so you're not loving people like I love. That's why it's dangerous to encounter God. Because I was quite happy. And now I've got to do something. I've got to change. I've got to love more deeply? Do you love dangerously? Do you live dangerously? Do You have dangerous faith? Do you pray dangerously? Do you have dangerous joy?? You know, the kind of response to
1: life's events where everything around you seems like it's collapsing and you're not stupid, you know it's collapsing and you go, yeah, there's many challenges in life, but God is good and I can still
0: rejoice and people look at you and think you're insane. Years ago, I remember announcing in church that we were expecting our first child
1: and everybody celebrated with us and that week we lost the baby. And the next Sunday, I got up to announce that we'd we'd lost that child. And then worship started. And I'll never forget this. The very first song in worship was, You are good, you are good, and your love endures. And I am stood with my wife. And I'm heartbroken, but my wife, probably even more heartbroken. I think those things are way harder for our wives than they are for us as men. And so I knew if I was heartbroken, I didn't know. And I'm looking at these words and going, I don't know if I I can sing. I'm not feeling this right now. I said, what do your feelings got to do with it?
0: What do your circumstances have to do with it? Is it true? Yes, it's true. Then sing it. You are good. You are good. I will rejoice in all circumstances because my joy is dangerous. I'm a dangerous guy. and I want you to be dangerous with me. So many of us have become safe and tame. I challenged some of our elders recently. You know, when you you first become an elder
1: or you first lead a congregation and you have no clue what you're doing, you're so desperate. It's like, God, you've got to speak to me, God. And you're so dependent on God because you've not a clue. And then five years later, you've learned some skills. And it's so easy to use your skills that you don't have to rely on God anymore. And we can have nice meetings. I want to vomit at nice meetings. How many of you are sick of nice
0: meetings? I think God vomits at nice meetings. At least he
1: says, be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. Or I'll vomit you out of my... I don't think he likes just nice. I think he wants us to come with faith. I think he wants to come with expectation. I think he wants us to be dangerous. I think he wants to release words in us and you to be courageous enough to say, yes, I'm going to bring that that God's given me.
0: And I think we've got to go beyond even, I think, the prophetic. It's great that as a church, we're very
1: prophetic and that, that many of us prophesy, but maybe we need to go a step further. One of the elders was telling me recently he was... He was uh, counseling and praying for somebody, and he got this very clear picture, and the clear picture was of this guy on a tractor learning to drive, and he felt God saying that um, his dad had never, growing up, his dad had never helped him with stuff, and he'd done everything on his own, and so he, he said to this guy, tell me, how did you learn to drive, and the guy said, I taught myself on a tractor, which is powerful, right? but it's less powerful than it could have been because he didn't show the vision because he was afraid of being wrong. How much more powerful would it have been if he'd said, God's just shown me a picture of you as a child and he saw you on that tractor teaching yourself to drive and he was there with you and he knew how you felt and you thought you didn't have your father, but your father was there watching you from on high. That would have been more powerful than, hey, oh, tell me, how did you how did you teach yourself to Safe prophecy or dangerous prophecy. And that's why Paul says prophecy should be tested. Let's be dangerous and if we get it wrong.
0: Say, sorry, I got it wrong. One of my frustrations, sorry, I'm just venting a little bit. Christian bingo.
1: Do you know what Christian bingo is? I've had a word. Somebody here's got a bad back. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, okay? I'm being a bit facetious. But if I got up and said somebody has got a bad back, I know just from statistics, somebody's going to respond. And it can still be God, and maybe God wants to heal bad backs. But I want to be a bit more dangerous. I want to say, okay, God, you've revealed somebody's got a bad back. Give me more information. Okay, there's somebody here got a bad back. It's a disc problem. Okay, that's a bit more specific. God, can you give me any more details? Uh, you injured it this way. Or right, it's a disc problem, and it's between L5 and L6. And you've been in a lot of pain and you're getting all this radiating pain down your leg and you've asked God and you've seen doctors and like, they're saying maybe surgery and God's saying, you don't need surgery. I want to heal you today. How much more powerful is that? And it's just a case of pressing into God a bit more.
0: Willing to be a bit more dangerous. Willing to look a bit more stupid. Is this making sense? I'm not despising Bible says, if
1: if you're going to prophesy, prophesy according to the measure of faith that's been given you, and that's fine. If all you've got is somebody's got a bad back and you think it's God, bring it to the elders, share it, hallelujah, praise God, people get prayed for. But we shouldn't stay there. We should allow our faith to grow and then prophesy according to our measure of faith.
0: Otherwise, we're just going to stay nice. You guys are so nice. This congregation's so nice. You are nice. But you know what I'm saying? You know what it says in Acts? It says, all came upon many,
1: and many were afraid to join them. And whilst many were afraid to join them, they still saw incredible revival. They still saw incredible increase because
0: they weren't vanilla. Were Marmite. You loved it or hated it? Uh, We're called to be Marmite, not vanilla. You know, everybody will eat vanilla. I don't think
1: vanilla is anybody's favorite, is it? Whose favorite is vanilla? Oh, there's always one. I like vanilla too. I like vanilla. There's room for vanilla. But you understand what I'm saying? How many of you old enough to remember pop songs from the 80s? There was, there was a duet, two girls, sisters, called Mel and Kim. Anybody remember Mel and Kim? That one hit wonders? Does that, do you remember what their one song was called?
0: The chorus went like this. I'm not going to sing it because I'm dangerous. I'm just not stupid. <laughs> it said, like or hate us, but you'll never change us. We ain't ever going to be respectable.
1: Take or leave us, but please believe us, we ain't ever going to be respectable. And I just think, man, we've got to willingly throw off that label of nice and respectable, average and vanilla. You know, it's interesting when David danced around in his underwear and his wife rebuked him for it, and it says his wife despised him. And I think this is an important object lesson for us because what happens in the Old Testament. It's all object lessons for us. And God judged people many ways. Sometimes the ground opened up and swallowed them. Sometimes they got leprosy. Sometimes they dropped down dead, whatever. And so the nature of God's judgment tells us a lot about something. What was the judgment on David's wife for despising the way that he worshipped? Barrenness. I think when we despise that because we're more concerned with what people will think them being outrageous and dangerous for God, I think we lose fruitfulness. I think we come into a, a, a time of barrenness, spiritual barrenness. And I don't want us to be spiritually barren. I want us to be spiritually fruitful. I want us to be like David, who would be outrageous,
0: who would not consider the reputation of man, who would be dangerous. Dangerous people
1: in a dangerous world, turning our cities upside down. We need to come and drink from him and drink from his spirit that we would become more like him. Our God is dangerous. We need to be dangerous too because we've got a dangerous mission and a dangerous world. So my challenge to you this morning,
0: are you willing to be dangerous? Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Are you man
1: enough to care for those who no one wants to know? Man enough to say the things that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end? The moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue? Are you man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Are you man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown? Are you man enough to love the world and turn it upside down? Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again.
0: And I pray that your response is, oh, Lord, I'm frightened, but I also say amen. Lord, this morning, we're done with being safe, average, nice, vanilla.
1: We want to be a people who represent you. And Jesus, you're a reputation of the strongest, most courageous, most dangerous man that ever lived.
0: You weren't weak. You were meek. Meekness is power under control. And you've given us power, incredible power, to turn our world upside down. But when it's under your control, we become what the world needs. Well, we want to be a dangerous people. We want to love dangerously.
1: We want to have dangerous faith, dangerous joy. We want to step out and try things that are so impossible that they're doomed to failure
0: unless you break through. When we talk about revival, yes, we want to see people saved, but we want our own
1: hearts set aflame where our own reputation, our own lives, our own survival is burned away and replaced by a, ca- a passion for you and your kingdom at any, co- at any price, at any cost. We know that you are, you are good, but we know that you are not safe. And we come and we drink from the river anyway because there is no other river. Come and fill us with your spirit afresh. Convict us, fill us, empower us, change
0: us. That we may no longer be safe, and tame, but that we will be dangerous. In the name of Jesus. And I'm going to step out and be a little bit dangerous. Because you may
1: be here, you may be a visitor, or you may have been coming for a long time and you've just kind of fit in. Because this is a nice place to be. But you've never resolved to surrender your life to the king. You've never come before the king and bowed your knee and said, my life is yours. And often when people preach the gospel, they say, come to Jesus so you can have salvation and a ticket to heaven. Or come to Jesus and you'll make your life better. And those things are true. In Jesus, we have eternal life. In, in, in Jesus, we have joy. But actually, Jesus said, if you come to me, you have to lose your own life to gain the life I, I have for you. And maybe you've never surrendered your own life. Maybe you've never surrendered control of your own life and given it to Jesus. Maybe Jesus has been an add-on to your life instead of the central part and the Savior. And I'm going to ask you, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus before today, i want to say it. I would hate for you to leave this place without doing it. First, because I think your soul is at stake. But second, because I want you to know the joy and the laughter and the excitement that I experience. The love of God that I experience. And so, I'm going to ask you in a moment to raise your hand if you know you need to respond, not to me, but to Jesus, and say, yes, I need to surrender. And you may, you know, I've I've had I've seen deacons in churches respond to that message. Like, what, what are you responding to? No, I don't think I was actually ever truly saved. And that's a big ask. Because like, what's everybody going to think of me? And I know raising your hand raises all kinds of questions. What do, will people think? And I'm going to ask you, are you going to be courageous this morning? Are you going to be dangerous? And are you, you going to say, I'm going I'm to respond to this for God. And I don't care about anybody else. And here's the reality. Nobody here will judge you. Everybody else will celebrate because we've all been there. We've all had to make the same call. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to count to three, and then if you need to respond, raise your hand, and we'll pray for you, we'll pray with you, and we'll celebrate with you, and we'll have a big party with the angels in heaven because Scripture says angels rejoice when people surrender to Jesus. So if that's you and you know you need to
0: respond, I'm going to count to three, then you can raise your hand. One, two, three. Nobody? Nobody? well, that's awesome news. (laughs) That's awesome news. Because that means there's not many people here
1: who need to respond because you already have. But if you are there and you were too afraid to raise your hand, don't leave here. Just grab me or Ross or somebody else and say, I messed up. I didn't raise my hand. That's cool. God is a God of second chances. The rest of us, I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I'm not going to pray for you. I'm not going to lay hands on you. I think While there's power in that sometimes, sometimes it can be a cop-out from just the need for me to hear God and respond to his voice and say, I'm going to resolve. Lord, I resolve.
0: Can we be dangerous? Dangerous people serving a dangerous God. Amen.